Hi, I'm Jesse Epstein, and you're listening to Drinking and Droshing Toro with a Twist. I'm here to tell you, keep following your dreams. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. I am so excited, as always, to celebrate this particular holiday with you because I know we always love lighting our Hanukkah or our menorahs, watching the candles come dripping down, and it's always just a beautiful time when it's so cold and so dark to bring some extra light into the room with us. You know, one of the things I love most about Hanukkah, other than the latkes, because, you know, potatoes always go to the top of the list. But one of the things I love most about Hanukkah is that sense of, you know, joy and comfort and family being together. I'm not sure how much of that is like adopted from secular or American or Christian winter celebrations, but it really is a nice time of year. Yeah, I mean, look, think about it this way. Generally, we think of winter as this cold moment kind of of not a lot of resources, maybe some famine in our regular surplus of life energy. You know, a lot of us are just trying to get to the end of the year. I know maybe certain people on this call are trying to get through finals week. But I have to tell you, Gabe, I am so excited because it feels like we have the best gift of all, which is to bring another HUC student on today for this episode during finals week to share in kind of this feast of ideas and celebrations and entrepreneurship that he's been just experiencing year after year during his time at HUC. It's been pretty incredible. And I think we have a lot to learn from him. Absolutely. And, you know, as somebody who's known him for a long time, I'm really excited to finally get him on the podcast. Wait, you actually know who our guest is today? Yeah. Was I not supposed to? Was it supposed to be a surprise? Well, happy Hanukkah, I guess. Here's your present. about you, but I am so, so excited for Hanukkah this year because it has been a rough semester. And as we're getting to the end of this annual year, it's getting darker, it's getting colder, and I'm looking for some light. Luckily for us, we have an incredible gift this week in the form of our guest. And our featured guest today is an awesome rabbinical student, Jesse Epstein. Jesse Epstein is a third year rabbinical student at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in New York. That's where we go. At HUC, he's one of the co-supervisors of the HUC New York Soup Kitchen and is a member of Dayenu, his campus's environmental action group. But that's not all. Jesse's entrepreneurial pursuits include his role as founder of Torah and Tourniquets, a workshop aimed at exploring the role of blood within Jewish tradition, texts, and history, while equipping participants with the knowledge and skills associated with life-saving trauma response techniques developed through the BYS Fellowship at HUC, which, guess what? So is drinking and droshing. That's exciting. Let's bring them together. Jesse is excited about the work he is doing through HUC's Tisch Fellowship as well as the Jewish Innovation Fellowship at 92NY and is honored to be the 2022 recipient of the Rabbi Stephen S. Pierce Prize in Human Relations. He looks forward to the rest of his studies at HUC as he draws ever nearer to his dream of serving others as a rabbi. 
But until then, when he's not studying or working, you can find him hiking, dancing, and exploring improvised movement, hanging out with dogs, we're waiting, Jesse, come hang out with Takia, or spending time near large bodies of water. Additionally, he has recently become the owner of Schmaltz Brewing Company, a beer brewing brand aimed at providing community members with a mode and environment for consumption steeped in Jewish ethics, text, and tradition. Jesse, we're not sure if you ever get to sleep, but we're certainly glad that you made the time to be on this particular episode of Drinking and Drashing Tour with a Twist. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Thank you so much, Amanda, for that lovely introduction to you and Gabe for having me on today. Really excited to be talking. Of course. Well, you know, I can't help but say, I know that I wasn't the one to meet you first. In fact, Gabe, didn't you have a relationship with Jesse prior to this particular episode and this school? That's true. Jesse and I met at Skidmore College. Go Thoroughbreds. And uh, yeah, Jesse was my Hillel president way back in the day. So that was fun. And he followed me to HUC. And I have to say... From what I remember of college, I don't think Jesse has ever slept. He's always been a person who's doing lots of different things that are all exciting and impressive. So we're really excited to have you on. So it sounds like Jesse might be a little bit more like Joseph than like Jacob, who took a nap once or twice during his, you know, journey to be Israel, the father of our people. But that's okay. We're going to be talking a lot about Joseph today, and we're talking about What happens when you're dreaming big and strong and also need to figure out how you're going to get that dream into real life? Lucky for us, we have our executive producer here with us who helps bring our dreams to real life every single week. Well, at least the ones where we can manage to get online. So what's going on, Idan? We're thrilled to see you today. How's it going? And happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah, guys. It's good to be here. Weird to say happy Hanukkah. I can't really fathom that it's already (laughs) the end of the year. (laughs) Well, I mean, but what a gift it is to come together, right? I mean, hey... After all, aren't we giving this as a present to the people listening in today? Yes? Gabe, are you down to give our listeners a special Hanukkah holiday treat? You know, I really hope that this episode brings a lot of light into everybody's homes. Who knows? There might even be a special discount for some of that drinking and drashing merch on our website. Stay tuned to the end to make sure that you get that specific coupon in now. But before we get to that gift, we have one more to give you first. We have an episode. Let's get started. Last week, we left off with Joseph in prison and the newly freed butler forgetting that he existed. So fast forward two years and Pharaoh has a dream about some cows. Seven were fat and healthy, seven were very much not. The good cows ate the bad cows and then Pharaoh woke up. Pharaoh's dream part two, same thing, but this time with wheat. I don't know how wheat eats other wheat, but whatever. So Pharaoh is understandably disturbed by these dreams, but nobody can interpret them. Just then, the butler remembers Joseph and how he had correctly interpreted dreams a couple years back. So Joseph is brought to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him about the cow and wheat dreams. Joseph is like, piece of cake. Seven cows means seven years, clearly. So there will be seven years of abundant harvest, followed by seven years of famine. It's all pretty obvious when you think about it. Joseph also talks his way into a job, administering taking a portion of the harvest to ration out during the famine. Works for me, said Pharaoh, appointing Joseph second in command over all of Egypt, with Pharaoh's own signet ring and linen garments and a gold chain and a chariot and, Hapax Legomenon alert, everyone cried out, Avrech, which may or may not have something to do with genuflecting. 
Anyway, Pharaoh names Joseph Zapinat Panea and gives him a wife named Asenat, who is the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, not to be confused with Potiphar, captain of the guard. By the way, Joseph is 30 at this point. They have two kids, Menashe and Ephraim. So things pretty much go as Joseph said they would, with abundant harvest in Egypt for seven years, and then, just as predicted, the famine started. But it's okay, because Joseph knew what he was doing. The famine reaches beyond Egypt into Canaan, and Jacob finds out there's grain for sale in Egypt. So he says, why are you all staring at each other? No, seriously, look it up. Genesis chapter 42, verse 1. Jacob tells his sons, all except Benjamin, to go to Egypt to buy some grain. So they do that, and they bow down before Joseph, and Joseph immediately recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph, so Joseph decides it's time for a little revenge, or a test, depends on who you ask. Joseph treats them as though they are spies, taking Simeon captive and sending the rest back to Canaan to bring back Benjamin. They do, bringing some grain back with them. They were supposed to pay for the grain, but Joseph had their money bags placed into the sacks of grain they brought back to Canaan. So maybe Joseph's being a good guy? Anyway... They get back to Canaan, and Jacob really doesn't like the plan, but after they run out of food, the brothers convince Jacob to let them bring Benjamin to Egypt. They also take a bunch of stuff and extra silver to give to Joseph. When they get to Egypt, Joseph has them brought to his house for lunch. When they see Joseph, they give him gifts and bow to him, and Joseph asks after Jacob. When he sees Benjamin, he nearly loses his cool and has to leave the room to splash some water on his face. He comes back, and they share a meal, but Joseph makes sure Benjamin gets the most food. Later, Joseph tells his people to give the brothers as much food as they can carry and to put their silver back into the bags just like last time. He also has his silver goblet placed secretly inside of Benjamin's bag. The next morning, the brothers leave, but they don't get very far. Joseph's men stop them and bring them back to Joseph's house. We end on a cliffhanger with Joseph telling the brothers that the one who stole from him will be his slave, and the rest will be free to go. And that's Parashat Miketz. That, that's a great summary. Uh, thank you for the reminder. You know, when you're reading it line by line, verse by verse, you get like all these details you don't get in a summary, but sometimes I forget that when you hear a summary of the Parsha, you get the zoomed out picture and you see how it all flows together. And it's hard, especially if you're not reading it all at once, but you're reading it in chunks, as I often do. Sometimes on my way to school on the subway, I'll read the first half. Sometimes on my way home at the end of a long day, I'll read the second half and I completely forgot what happened in the first half. So it's nice to hear it all together and to get that summary. Thank you. And that's an interesting thing about our tradition, that we have these Torah readings where they're split up into Aliyot, where we don't actually read the whole thing all at once. That just never happens. And the very fact that the parshas are split up the way they are is artificial, right? The whole text is one big story. It's one big collection. So on some level, we have to read it split up like that. We have to zoom into the details. But on the other hand, we actually need to look at the whole thing, the whole text, and look at those individual details as part of the greater whole. Otherwise, we're not really getting the full picture. It makes me wonder how the story would look different if it was split up differently, right? If we read it in different chunks. I know that, well, I imagine that, that when it was divided up in the way it is, that, you know, story snippets that made sense were grouped together. But I'm sure there were other ways that it could have been done. And how that might sound. I know that there are certain projects out there. I'm working right now. I'm going through the 929 project, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but you read 
one chapter of Tanakh every day. And it takes, I think, over four years. And right now we're going through Nevi'im, through Prophets. And that's where I started. I started the project when they finished Torah and started Joshua just because I wanted a little bit extra practice, my chivrut, and I wanted some extra practice with the prophets and to learn a little bit more beyond what we've learned in school. But when we get to Torah in a few years, when we start the cycle over, I'll be curious to see how it's broken down and how it's affected when we read it one chapter at a time, as opposed to these big stories. Well, I'm really excited to keep talking Torah and talk a little bit more about your work and about the things that you're doing. So let's jump into that next section. Jesse, I know that in your bio, we've talked about you being an entrepreneurial spirit, right? You talk about having one. I would actually say that you are one. It's really difficult to go to clergy school and keep on inventing things that will reach such an incredible amount and array of people. What is it that drives that spirit? And what is it that really gets you engaged in things that might be difficult for you, including, by the way, Torah for tourniquets and the Schmaltz Brewing Company? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you were joking earlier about how I don't sleep and Gabe mentioned that I never have. And I do enjoy my sleep. I'm a night person. It's tough to get up in the mornings uh, pretty much every day. I think I've always been an ideas person and it comes from being an idealist. Talking about people in terms of optimists and pessimists, but I, I fit into the category of idealists. I, I have a vision. I see something a certain way or I want something to be a certain way, you know, and it's easy to get frustrated when it's not that way. And I think I often did in the past until I realized, well, if something's not where I want it to be, if, if the world's not in the way I want to experience it or see it or my surroundings aren't where I want them to be, I might not be able to make it happen, but I can try. And sometimes I'll be successful. And so when I think that the world needs something around me, you know, it's, it's hard for me to pretty much every day let someone else do it, to, you know, just walk by and think, oh, you know, that someone will take care of that problem, make a solution. You know, I decide to take it on. And I often do that too often. I, uh, I try to take on a lot of the problems I see around me or go forward with uh, all the creative ideas I have. But I find that naturally sometimes the ones that aren't meant to be sort of die back or get put on hold while the ones that people respond to and feel encouraged by motivate me as well to see them through. And I feed off of other people's energy and hopefully the reverse is true. So I do try to live by my ideals as an idealist. I also try to prepare myself for when things don't work out and you know, be okay when all is not at the ideal that I see it, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to try. And so when we read the Torah portion that Gabe just summarized and talk all about this dreamer, you know, what am I doing here on this podcast? If you're saying I don't sleep, how am I then supposed to dream? But what I often do is daydream. I, I sit there thinking about all these different things I can do, all of these ideas I have, and you know, it's funny, we just read about Jacob, who actually lied down, adjusted the rock on the ground so that it was comfortable and it was a pillow, and he actually went to sleep. And we are now reading about Joseph, and I'm sure some of those dreams are also actual dreams, but I don't think it as explicitly talks about, you know, someone lying down in the same way and gives us the same image of someone asleep. And, you know, these visions that might at times be daydreams, Joseph seems to really be able to see the world in a different way and have that same or be that same entrepreneurial spirit. 
Yeah, I mean, it brings up a really interesting question of like, what's the difference between a vision and a dream? And on some level, like those could be synonyms. We could talk about them as the same thing. You know, we could say that Jacob's ladder is the same thing as Pharaoh's cows. It's the same kind of God's giving a message or there's something else going on. Regardless, I think it's interesting that we describe Joseph as like a man of dreams because in this Torah portion, he's a man of action. Like he's taking charge. He's in a leadership position, like really in a leadership position, second in command over all of Egypt in charge of taking care of the entirety of the famine before it happens, getting all of the people ready, filling the grain silos, making sure everything's rationed out. So I'm curious about this connection between dreams and action. How do we get from one place to the other? Because not only do you have all of these ideas and these ideals, but then you do the next step. You put them into action. You put them into practice. So what does that process look like for you? I think that part of the similarity between myself and just is knowing when and how to seize an opportunity. And that can be hard to do, especially in a discouraging situation. Joseph really had it rough originally. He was sold by his brothers into slavery and his father was told that he was killed. And so he's in a really bad situation. He was a slave. We know he was in prison and he was in a situation pretty much as bad as it gets. And thinking back on my experience over the past few years and our experience, not nearly as bad, but bad in a lot of ways with this pandemic we've faced, right, over the last however many years now. But thinking back to when some of these ideas, when I first started dreaming up this Jewish brew pub and, and this Jewish brewing company I wanted to run before I even realized that there was one out there that was shutting down that I was able to purchase, I had this idea to do something similar. And what encouraged me to pursue it is being stuck in a bad situation. And it's often when we're down, when we're faced with something really tough that we find ourselves sitting back and dreaming. You know, when things are really good in our lives, we're out there enjoying whatever is going on. We're out there meeting people and talking to people. But when we're stuck inside before the vaccines were available, before we can really connect with people and everyone's scared and, and depressed about the state of the world, that's when we were able to dream. And that's when I decided, you know, I, I was just starting rabbinical school. I wasn't sure yet if this was exactly what I wanted to do. I had to kind of try it out. I was doing my year in Israel from my New York City bedroom on Zoom with the Jerusalem faculty trying to, you know, go on field trips on their phones, trying to show us around. I mean, it, it, that obviously wasn't ideal, you know, and I needed something more. I wanted something more. I wanted a way to interact with the world. I started coming up with all these ideas for things I can do. I got on TikTok. I thought I'd be the TikTok rabbi. I made a viral video for Yom Kippur that year. And then I decided TikTok was not it. That was too much work. That fall during the pandemic, when I started rabbinical school, that my girlfriend got me a home brewing kit, desperate to do something. She got me this home brewing kit. And uh, we actually, we had moved in with my mom, not sure how long it would be, thinking it would just be a few months before Israel. Uh, and I started brewing beer in my mom's basement, much to her dismay. She was trying to show the house, uh, wanting to sell it, and it started to smell like yeast fermenting, obviously, because I was brewing beer. So she wasn't happy, but I was. And I got really excited and interested and passionate about this vision, which started off as a dream. And so one thing leads to another, 
Some of it is luck and circumstantial. You need to be in the right place at the right time, surrounded by the right people who feed your dreams. But eventually, if you can mold them and shape them and you don't forget them, and remember how easy it is to forget a dream when we wake up in the morning, if you don't forget them, they can really turn into clear visions. For me, I love everything about that because I think that it shows that it's okay for you to get out and fall or even get out and fail and you can still be living your dream. And for me, it's such an interesting thing because here we start off learning that there's like a two-year stretch where Joseph just isn't in the picture. Well, two years, you know, that was the majority of our greatly impacted pandemic education at HGC. And so, Jesse, I think that you spoke to that really beautifully of it wasn't what we were expecting, but it was something that just challenged us and made us grow. And and I've talked about this before in the podcast that I think that in order to grow, we have to break our conceptions of who we are and we have to be able to move forward. And what I think is so fascinating about this is when they go to grab Joseph, they're like, look, he has these skills. A hundred percent he's in jail, but he has these skills. You know, let's bring him before Pharaoh. And before they do that, they basically send him to a barber. They go, okay, well, you have to look the part. So they send him to a barber to cut his hair, and then they put him in nice clothes, and then they send him to Pharaoh, because, God forbid, Pharaoh think that he was in prison for the last two years, and he show up not in good shape. But even then, Joseph goes, wait, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not the dream interpreter. God's the dream interpreter. You know, Pharaoh is humble, even with his entrepreneurial spirit. It's really interesting. For me, it shows a growth point of in the beginning of Joseph's stories when he was talking about Yeshev with his brothers, he was like, I had this dream and here's what it means, you know? And now Joseph is like, hey, I'm not the one that can interpret them. Like clearly God's the one interpreting them. I'm just the middleman person. And I think, Jesse, one of the things that I, I see you doing is taking these things that seem really far out of reach and bringing them to the people around you as the middleman to make them not so scary, to make them accessible and reachable. And I just want to know, like, what is that like for you? That's a lot of pressure to be able to interpret for the people. I don't know if I ever, like, saw myself in that capacity. That's how I describe myself. So it's really interesting to think about it as you do. And I don't really know if I've ever compared myself to Joseph before, although my Hebrew name is Yosef, so it, you know, that perhaps I should. Everything you're saying is really sparking a million thoughts. This is one of the stories so far in the Torah that really doesn't mention God all that much, at least not as much as you know in the conversations with Abraham that we saw a few parshiot ago, and even with Abraham's uh, children and his grandchildren. And so a few generations out, we're already seeing God to be somewhat removed from the picture, at least not in such a direct way. And when we think about where we are today, we don't have that prophetic voice at all in the way we did in our biblical times. We don't have that direct link to God where we actually hear the voice of God, you know, and whether we did even at that time is, is obviously up for interpretation and debate. But I view my role and kind of all of our role to live a little bit like Joseph in that we might not get that direct message from God, but God is still very present. And when we talk about interpretation of dreams and looking inside ourselves and our minds to figure out what it is we should be doing or, or you know, how we can view the world. You know, I had a question for someone the other day. This was actually when I was working on my on the 929 project. I was reading 
judges. And I think I was reading a passage about Gideon who stormed a city with his army based off of a dream interpretation. And I asked my friend, how is it that we can interpret dreams and decide what the future is, what we should be doing based off of a dream, but we can't read the stars? That's idolatry. But interpreting dreams feels magical too. Is that, why is that okay? And I think it's because the stars might be out there. They might be part of creation like everything. But it really, it's not the entire world and every element of creation that was created in the image of God, B'Tselem Elohim, it was us. And when we try to think about our own minds and interpret what's already there, what was put there by the divine, that's our way of reading God's message today. And that's our way of seeing God and reading God into the story, even if God isn't there in as explicit a way as God was biblically. So I'm curious about like just extending that into your kind of personal theology, just kind of like going down that road a little bit. Because what you're talking about is like the imminence of God. You're talking about how active God is in our lives. And there are those who say that like God has a plan for us and God does things because God works in mysterious ways and everything happens for a reason and whatever, which has its moments and also is often not great theology in, you know, my professional opinion, that leads to, like, blaming God for bad things that happen in the world and for saying, you know what, bad things are because God wanted them to happen. God wanted bad things to happen. And so, like, that's difficult. That's difficult theology. And so I'm curious with all of these different entrepreneurial ventures you're going down, I would imagine that you don't necessarily see it as, you know, all part of God's plan, that all of this is preordained. But I'm wondering how you see the role of either like fate or the role of like a calling, you know, a divine purpose in some of these ventures that you take on. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know how good of an answer I can provide because my theology is information and God willing, it always will be. And there's a lot that's going to shift over time and that's currently shifting in my mind. I do think that, you know, as speaking as someone who's very science-minded and, you know, I always thought that I would be a scientist growing up and I was involved in the medical world. I was an EMT before I decided to get involved uh, with rabbinical school and pursue this calling. But I, I view the brain as divine, the entire human body. We talk a lot about the ways our body works in our liturgy, and I think that that's intentional. Many of our commentators and scholars throughout history have been doctors and have explored the body and have explored the mind. Many of the world's greatest psychologists were Jewish, and I really think that there's this strong connection between the mind and between divinity and whatever it is that we're calling God. Scientists I've learned a lot about the brain, but there's still so much to know. I would guess we probably know 1% of how the brain actually works and what's going on in there. And, and that 1%, and, and, and I'm making that number up, maybe it's more, maybe it's less, but it's a lot. There's a lot of information out there, and we know a little bit about how dreams work. We know that the memory centers of the brain are stimulated in certain ways or active and processing our thoughts as we're asleep and, you know, interpreting them in ways that maybe we can understand, maybe ways that feel scary sometimes if we're experiencing different emotions based off of our cortisol levels and stress and so on. So I can talk about that forever, but 
I think the core of, of what I'm saying is that dreams in terms of writing prophecy might not be accurate, right? Like the way that dreams worked in this Torah portion, seven years of good luck, seven years of bad luck, that just sounds to me like the, uh, you know, seven years of famine followed by seven years of plenty. That's the, you know, original text chain or email chain, you know, Joseph texting around, you know, everybody go send this to three people or you'll get seven years of bad luck. You know, I, that's what it sounds like to me, you know, and so whether it was actually prophetic or not, I don't know. But what I get from it is that perhaps Joseph experienced or saw consciously or unconsciously that the climate was changing, that something was going on in society, that there was disruption in the agricultural economy, whatever it is, that there was some reason why things were going to get bad before they got better. And it was his unconscious mind that brought that to light, maybe through God, maybe through the sense of divinity. You know, who's to say? But he listened to the dream, not his own dream, actually, Pharaoh's dream, but he listened to the dreams, he interpreted, he understood what the charge was. And so this is a lesson in pursuing dreams a little bit and to not letting our bad dreams, either bad sleeping dreams or daydreams derail us because they can provide insight. They might not exactly tell us the future, but they're a way of sorting through our thoughts unconsciously. And if our brain is able to make connections and surface some serious anxieties or fears, then as long as we listen, we're a step ahead. And we have that divine insight. We have that prophecy because we know what to prepare for. Uh, We told ourselves in our unconscious state what to prepare for, and we know what to look out for. So I want to jump in and just because I'm looking at the clock and I want to make sure I ask and we get to like the meat of the thing. You're on this new venture of uh, the Schmaltz Brewing Company, which, by the way, I've been a fan of for a very long time. I used to make a very wonderful rye bread out of the Messiah Nut Brown Ale, but that's a separate issue. What I am curious about is because you're talking about this like intersection of science and Judaism. And I'm really curious about the, you know, to me, brewing, that's chemistry. That's fun. That's like a total sciencey thing. And it's food, which is also a sciencey thing. And it's sustenance. And there's, you know, neurological stuff that happens because of alcohol consumption. And so I'm curious because you're taking this thing that for you is fun and it's sciency, and you're making it Jewish. You're bringing a religion into it, not even just a like cultural Jewish identity. We're not going beyond just like, you know, and it's related to, you know, my grandmother's Kugel. We're going into something a little more based around tradition. And so I'm curious what that intersection looks like in this specific venture. What is up with the Schmaltz Brewing Company? What's that vision? What's that dream? Oh, thank you for asking. And by the way, the Messiah Nut Brown Ale was the very first Schmaltz beer that I tried, probably when we were both Skidmore students, probably before I was supposed to be drinking beer, you know. But you already named a lot of the interesting components of what makes food religious or what could make beer religious fermentation changes one thing into another and we can look at things in different states and talk deeply and existentially about how things change and what we need to do to them and exert upon them in order to get them to change including ourselves we can talk about you know uh, i mean food is probably the most religious thing out there Uh, you know as you said 
in terms of family recipes when you were talking about the Kogel and cultural recipes. But everybody eats and every culture over time has developed some sort of relationship to food and some way of looking at food. And so, yes, on a surface level, I love craft beer and I love Judaism. So this is, you know, a marriage between two of my passions for sure. But on a deeper level, I wouldn't say that I am making beer Jewish. I think I'm showing people how it already is or how it can be. There's, you know, there's so many things to explore. Usually when people hear food and Jewish or drinks and Jewish, they will jump to the traditional of Jewish consumption, which is kashrut, is this food kosher? Bracho, what are the blessings we need to say over this food? And those are great. You know, we're, we're learning all of that, you know, over at HUC and practicing that in our, in our lives. And that's meaningful to me and a lot of other people. But I, I'm finding that there's a lot of people that that's not so meaningful, right? I didn't grow up with too much kosher influence, you know, a little bit of kosher style influence. But I know a lot of people that didn't even have that. And blessings weren't really a thing in my house, not even on Shabbat. We didn't really observe Shabbat in any way. I grew up in a very secular home, and yet I still felt very, very Jewish for so many reasons. And it wasn't about the traditional elements. It wasn't even about going to synagogue. I didn't do that all that often. And I'm seeing that not too many people today are so interested. And I do like going to synagogue, and I know a lot of people who do, but that's partially because I go to a seminary. And this might not be the thing that anyone at our school wants to hear, but there is a growing number of people that don't like going to synagogue. And I don't think are any less spiritual. I think that people are deeply spiritual. Jews are deeply spiritual, even if they identify as cultural Jews, as secular Jews. And I want to be a rabbi for them, too. I think that every Jew deserves to have some pastoral support and grounding presence. And so my whole philosophy behind this big project I'm undertaking with Schmaltz Brewing Company, you know, how do we make beer Jewish? It's not that. It's how do we meet people where they're at and bring something fun, relatable, relevant, and infuse it with Judaism in a way that Judaism becomes meaningful. It's not trying to trick people into coming to synagogue, but it's saying, let's gather at a place where we're already comfortable. We already talk about big life existential questions like a brew pub, and let's do that in a Jewish way. And so, yeah, sure, we can turn to the traditional modes of kashrut and brachot if we want, but we can go to the wider umbrella of cultural Judaism and say, what does our tradition have to say about different recipes that came from different parts of the world, family recipes, that sort of thing. But even so, people are left out because not everyone knows their family lineage. Not everyone has Jewish family lineage. And so how do we widen the umbrella even more? And this is really where I'm starting and where my focus is. It's value-based Judaism. It's when we recite our Nisim B'chol Yom, our daily blessings, and we talk about freeing the captive and opening the eyes of the blind and welcoming in the stranger. How do we go beyond just saying that in the morning, but embodying that in our practices, in our day-to-day, -day, whether they're secular or religious practices, and really secular or religious is what I'm getting away from. I think something can be secular and religious, whatever, but I'm taking eating and drinking. When we do that, how do we embody freeing the captive? And that's not a question I'm going to answer here. That's what we're exploring with Schmaltz and, and that question and many others. That's the aim to say that, you know, Judaism isn't something that we hang up on the talit rack with our talit when we exit a synagogue, but it's something that we take out of the synagogue with us and always wear and use to inform and add meaning to every single other thing we do while we're awake and while we're asleep, because we have 
rich 3,000-year-old history to inform each of those seconds during the day. So I'm actually going to push back on you, Jesse. I'm going to say you said you weren't going to answer the question, but it feels a little bit like you have. And just to speak to it in terms of this particular portion, I think you gave a really powerful message, which is that it's possible that people are looking at Judaism and Jews, whether they're secular, whether they're in, as kind of we're in this famine. And in this particular portion, right at the end of chapter 41, we hear that this famine that kind of went into Egypt like really went throughout. And we hear, like, you know, in the very next line, again, ki and all the lands that, like, there was this famine. And I think a lot of Jewish institutions, especially Jewish organizations, tend to look and go, wow, we have such a dearth of Jewish activity, of Jewish participation. We have, you know, clearly there's an accessibility problem. I argue actually we're the ones with the accessibility problem, that the people who are working at institutional Judaism, the people who are dealing with issues coming from an organizational lens, we're the ones that are seeking access to the people that are not in the building, that are not in the programs, that are not coming to us. We're trying to find ways to get out there. And one of the things that I love about what you're doing, Jesse, is that I think that you're turning this perception of famine into one of feasting, you know, this ability of Actually, we have a surplus of options available for people to get engaged in things that they love doing, whether that is, you know, brewing beer, whether that is going to the gym and working out, whether it's taking a walk, whether it's reading a book, whether it's having a conversation, that there are so many things outside of an organizational or synagogal or whatever it is inside the institution that we sometimes look outside and go, oh, like that's lacking, And Jesse, I don't think it is lacking. I think one of the reasons that we created this podcast was because we said, wow, there's a lot of opportunity out there. There are a lot of people out there who are looking for community and continuity, not at the cost of a synagogue membership, not at the cost of a JCC membership, but at, you know, the cost of their most valuable resource, which is time and energy. Now, there's a lot of people out there, I agree with you, that are looking at this as maybe I'm not Jewish enough for this. And Jesse, you go, I'm just trying to have a beer with you. You know, like, I'm just trying to say hi. I'm just trying to give you a Hanukkah present, you know? And I love it. I think that the way to flip this famine into feast mentality is to just get out there and have the conversation. And so that's the message that I'm getting for you. But because I don't want to put words into your mouth, Jesse, Let's say you did have the opportunity, say you were on a podcast during the Hanukkah season, and you had the gift of sharing a message for our listeners. What would you want them to know or think or do or feel or just be aware of? What's your big message for the people, your Hanukkah present? Thanks for asking. I think you and I are very much on the same page. You know, it is about opportunity, and there's a lot of opportunity out there, and people are hungry for connection and meaning and value in life, you know, and so it's it's not that people are turning away or running away, it's that we're not always meeting people where they're at. The message for people who are trying to address this famine is to seize the opportunities. Don't be dismayed by the famine. You know, Joseph saw saw that there was something bad coming. And, you know, by the way, a grain famine would be very bad for the craft beer industry. But Joseph saw this famine coming and said, no, here's what we need to do. We're going to be okay and seized the opportunity, climbed the ladder, made sure that he was on top so that he can promote his ideas because he knew exactly what needed to happen. And I I encourage any of us to do that. There are so many people with good ideas out there and so many people just don't act on them or don't write them down and then forget them. And so 
keep a notebook, carry a notebook around with you, you know, make it a New Year's resolution, you know, take this time, this dark time of the year during Hanukkah to think about the ways in which you can come 2023 when the holiday is over, move yourself into this new space of acting on your dreams. And you don't, if they are daunting, you don't know how to do them yourself, bring someone else in. I am not doing this on my own, the Schmaltz Brewing Company. I have a team of about 15 incredible volunteers and I myself am a volunteer in the project. And as of now, we're all doing this just because we believe it would be a great thing for the Jewish world and we wanna see it happen. And so anyone who has an idea Reach out to someone. The whole notion of Chavruta in our tradition encourages us to put our ideas and our insights and innovations out there so that other people can reflect on them and give you feedback and help mold and shape your thoughts. And also so that you yourself can hear it out loud because if it's just in your head, it's not going to come out as clear. You're not going to hear what actually sounds silly or what's a good idea. So just start talking, start connecting. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. So it's Hanukkah, and I have a question for you. Yeah, what's up? What's a Hanukkah? A Hanukkah is a candelabra. It's like, it's, you know, a menorah that's a branched, you know, candelabra that has one big candle called the shamash and then eight little candles. Okay. You just said another word that I'm supposed to know. Wait, what's a menorah? Okay, so a menorah is a more general term for a candelabra. Usually you'll see ones with seven branches, not the nine of the Hanukkah. Wait, seven. Is that important? Seven is important. Yeah, seven's a really, really Jewish number. Okay, so if I challenged you to make, I don't know, a drink that had seven things in it for the eight days of Hanukkah, could you do it? Seven days for the seven. I think I'd rather do seven for like the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. Oh, you mean based on this Torah portion? Yeah, based on Parashat Miketz. Oh, let's go do that then. Okay. So for this week on Midrashic Mixology, we bring you the seven years sangria. This beer sangria is the perfect pitcher cocktail for all of your Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, and New Year's get-togethers. But Gabe, why all of those other holidays? This is a Jewish podcast. I'd like to point out that while the Hanukkah story is easily one of our most fundamentalist, particularist, isolationist narratives, Parashat Miketz is kind of the opposite, with Joseph coming together with Pharaoh and taking a leadership role in Egypt without ever renouncing his heritage. So anyway, we're going to start with some fruit for the seven years of good harvest. One blood orange, thinly sliced. One regular orange, also similarly thinly sliced. A half cup of red seedless grapes, halved. And a half cup of blackberries and a half cup of cranberries. Toss all of those into a pitcher with four or five cloves, two cinnamon sticks, and two sprigs of rosemary. Pour in seven ounces of rye whiskey, shout out to those seven sheaves of wheat, and two ounces of orange juice. Lightly stir all of that together and leave it for a few minutes to let the liquids soak into the solids and the solids infuse into the liquids. 
When you're ready to serve, pour in 12 ounces of your favorite citrus or berry seltzer, followed by two bottles of a winter lager. I'll let Jesse make his own recommendations, but generally, you're looking for something rich, a bit crisp, with maybe some sweet or spicy notes. I should also say that back in 2020, Schmaltz Brewing Company released a Golden Jelly Donut Hanukkah Beer. I was incredibly skeptical at first, but it might actually work well with all of its fruity flavors. For our alcohol-free friends, use four cups of apple cider in lieu of the rye and beer. A toast to Hanukkah and the new year, or seven, of plenty. Lechaim. That sounds delicious. I think that someone else is going to have to make that for me. I'm not sure I got that all down or that I have the time or the energy to make it all, but I can't wait to try it. And I was also waiting. I, I had a feeling you'd bring beer into it, given that I'm here. I was waiting, and you mentioned the winter lager, and it just got me thinking, do we have a winter lager? Could we have a winter lager? First, I just came up with a great idea for a new schmaltz winter lager, Mashiv Haruach Omarit Hagashem, winter lager. I, I think that that would be you know, a, a really fun way of utilizing something that we incorporate into our liturgy during the specific season of the year alongside a specific drink that we have only during a particular season of the year. So thanks for being the inspiration for that, Gabe. You know, I'm honored to be a part of the creation of that winter lager. I think that's going to be fantastic. I'd love to try it when it's ready. For the people who didn't quite get what that was about, so we have this prayer where, among other things, we pray for either rain or dew, depending on the time of year. So during the rainy season, which is the winter, we pray for rain, and during the dry season, we pray for dew. And so that's what Jesse was referring to there. And also, it does imply the existence of a Morid Hatal, that is a dew-themed summer ale. So I'm just going to let you run with that as you will. I can't wait to write that down as soon as we finish recording this podcast. It, it might take a while, but we'll get there. Jesse, well, it's been a complete delight. And as I said, really a gift to have you here, especially during finals week. Thanks for recording with us during a really tricky, difficult time. You know, I have to say, I'm sad that we hit our last section, our thank yous and closing cues, but I'm thrilled to wrap it up with you just as we're wrapping up, you know, a little bit of this portion. And believe it or not, before we know it, we're going to end this book. It's a little crazy. But, of course, I always have a question that I like to finish our episodes with. And so, Jesse, Gabe, Idan, and Miketz, we read about dreams and tests and overcoming challenges to find greatness. And during finals week, I feel like all of us are dreaming about finishing our tests and hopefully doing great on them. But before we can get there, what do you think is the first step to making your dreams become a reality? Jesse, we'll start with you. I'm going to stick with what I said earlier, which is that I think the... You know, dreams, we're talking about both dreams when you first wake up and you're asleep and you had a dream, and also the dreams that inspire us to do things in the world. And both of those types of dreams are very easy to forget. 
you know, if we're not going to write them down and share them with others. Each of us probably comes up with hundreds of ideas each day, and some of them are probably really good, but we don't know until we try it out. So I'm going to encourage everyone, the first step in making your dreams reality is to write them down. Write them down or tell someone that can remind you later, hey, remember that really cool idea you had? Let's do that. That's the first step. I love it. I also, you know, I was thinking for myself and I was like, what would I think it was? And I was thinking about saying it out loud, making sure that it, you know, came out so that somebody could hold you accountable. Gabe, what say you, my friend, who I tend to tell all of my dreams to, whether you like it or not? I tend to get super overwhelmed. I love like coming up with new ideas. I love the imagining of it. But when it comes to actual implementation, I get really overwhelmed really quickly because some of these dreams can be really daunting and really big. And so my advice is that when you're embarking on a new project, split it up into as small pieces, as small goals as possible. That first step can be as simple as, Jesse said, writing it down, or as simple as telling somebody about it, or as simple as a Google search. Yeah, just break down the goals into really small little pieces. Would you say that they're bite-sized pieces, Gabe? I might actually say they're closer to, like, drams, maybe a shot, if you will. Okay. I think for me, generally... I agree with Jesse is writing them down and Gabe knows I am nothing if not a step-by-stepper in order to try to get the things on my to-do list to done. But I think also, believe it or not, sometimes it's okay to put your dreams on the back burner in order for you to have other ones come forward. I find that if I'm feeling overwhelmed or I get excited about an idea but I don't have the energy for it, it's better to hold off for a little bit. For me, I know that I've been working on writing something that I wrote about a year ago and wanting to get it published, and it just wasn't something that I had the ability to really, really work on in the moment. And that was a dream. It's something that I really care about. But at this moment, the podcast and placement and finals and becoming a rabbi and working on it just took a little bit of a priority. And so I would say, like, remembering how to prioritize when you have all of these ideas also matters, you know, just being able to match your energy level with your ability to actually get the things done. Idan, I know I stole your spotlight. I went before you, but any ideas for us or anything that you want to share about how you get your dreams into this real world? Do it. Just do it. Don't let your dreams be dreams. Yesterday you said tomorrow, so just do it. Make your dreams come true. Just do it. These are wise words spoken by the great Shia LaBeouf. I think sometimes you just need a little bit of motivation. And, you know, as someone, you know, who deals with mental health stuff that, you know, could impede that process, I think just being patient with yourself, making a plan. There's a difference between putting it on the back burner and just chipping away at it a little bit at a time with doing what you can as you can. That is how you make progress. I agree with that. I mean, and I think actually, believe it or not, that's what Joseph kind of says to Pharaoh as well. Make sure that you're doing a little bit at a time as you can over time, making sure that that way you move kind of from this idea of famine to feast. And honestly, by the time that Joseph was done with all of it, he couldn't even count, you know, the amount of resources that he had. It was immeasurable. It was uncountable. It was too high. And so, you know, I think that's great advice. I may not always follow it, 
But, you know, sometimes that's where we're at. It's all a conversation. And Jesse, you have so many incredible opportunities that I bet there are a lot of listeners that would love to hear more about you and from you. And so if people want to continue the conversation, how could they best find or follow you? There's actually a number of ways you can keep track of what we're doing with Schmaltz. You can follow at Schmaltz Brewing, and that's Schmaltz spelled S-H-M-A-L-T-Z. I know sometimes we insert a C-S-C-H, but our company doesn't. It's just S-H-M-A-L-T-Z Brewing. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can also go to schmaltzbrewing.com. Feel free to keep track of some of my other projects. I'm working on a big Torah and tourniquets project combining this big study over blood and its role in our ritual and tradition and history and culture with a very practical hands-on bleeding control workshop to learn how to respond in the wake of trauma uh, back from my EMT days. So we're making that sort of training more relatable and relevant and Jewish as well. You can keep track of that at TorahandTourniquets.com. Feel free to reach out on any of those channels and I'd be happy to chat with any of our listeners further beautiful i think that they would be thrilled to reach out i know that i am lucky enough to hang out with you on a regular basis at school and to ask you any questions but it's really fun to be able to work with another entrepreneur on campus and off campus so jesse any last words thoughts concerns or jokes for us first i just want to say thank you so much for having me on today it's really an honor for me having been in meetings with you at school for our entrepreneurial fellowship with be wise Uh, hearing all your updates and what you've been working on and and having listened to a few episodes to see it from this perspective is really special and just to connect with other dreamers with people who had big ideas and then made them happen that's also really really special so thanks for sharing your project with me it's really an honor and now i can't wait to share more of my project with you next time we're able to have a beer together i'm thinking about beer jokes that i've heard i don't have too many but in the spirit of hanukkah calling us back to ancient days I know that in the story of Hanukkah, we're dealing with the ancient Greeks, but let's pretend it was ancient Rome for a second, because there's a Roman walks into a bar, he holds up two fingers and says, give me five beers. It's a Roman numeral joke, although probably having to explain that makes it not so funny. I disagree. Explaining jokes always makes them funnier. On this podcast, we believe that that's true, and it was excellently done. Thank you, Jesse, for an incredible episode. Thank you, Gabe, for your beautiful, beautiful rundown and drink, as always. Thank you to Edan for just, man, making sure that we always get these out to you. And thank you to our editors, Kate and Mike, for making sure their episodes get out to you. We're so lucky to have you on our team. Thank you, of course, as well to all of our listeners. You are our Hanukkah gifts. We are so thrilled to be in this with you in it together. We can't wait to celebrate this holiday and the upcoming new year with you. Stay tuned for our conclusion coming at you next. Hey, Amanda. Yes, Kate. Have I ever told you about my undergraduate finals week tradition? I don't know. Okay, so when I was in college at Skidmore, every finals week, I would freak out. Totally, totally freak out because I got really overwhelmed and I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel and there would be so much work and I would be so nervous and so so stressed and I would call my parents and I would be freaking out and my dad would say Gabe go get a milkshake and I said I don't have time to get a milkshake and he said yes you do go get a milkshake and so once every finals week I would go out and I would get a milkshake and that was my finals week tradition 
Interesting. Why do we bring that up now? Okay, so two reasons. First, I was thinking about it while we were talking about, you know, how do you take one small step toward your goal? And honestly, sometimes you need to sit back, you need to take a break, you need to get a milkshake. Second reason is that I think when we're talking about these dreams and we're talking about these really big ideas and entrepreneurship, it's easy to get overwhelmed by the big picture. And sometimes we need to remember that there are little joys that come along in life, whether or not they are related to that dream. So yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. Go get a milkshake. I appreciate that. I think that that was a little bit of Jesse's point too, is that even though there are things in our lives that might drag us down, even when things are crazy, there's always the opportunity to look at, you know, the challenges we face, yes, as opportunities. I know I said the same word twice in one sentence, but we have the option of looking at things as either feast or famine. We have the option to say, hey, I've got a ton of papers and a thesis to edit and I'm going to placement and a bunch of places that we need to interview. Or I get to say, oh my gosh, Gabe, I am finishing this thesis that I put so much work into and I'm going to get to meet all of these cool people. I'm going to start this new year with such an exciting, exciting outlook on how things are going to be and how lucky am I to like get to live this part of my dream with all of my friends who are so supportive and also my family. Shout out to the Weisses. But realistically, like how incredible is that? It's a little bit kind of all about how you shift your viewpoint. Sometimes a shift in viewpoint is exactly what we need, which is why it's interesting that, you know, Pharaoh has his dream twice. He has two different dreams, one about cows and one about wheat. I think it's also interesting to mention that last week, Joseph had two different dreams. He had the stars and he had the wheat. Interesting that there were two wheat ones, but we'll ignore that for the moment. Because sometimes we need to get a message more than once. Sometimes it doesn't come across the first time. Sometimes we need that change of perspective. 100%. I also just want to throw out there that, you know, sometimes we just need a little bit of gift and we need a little bit of help and we need some people to look out for us. And so let's say that we were looking for a miracle for people that were doing some last minute during the holiday Hanukkah shopping and we wanted to help them out. Let's say they had a special code even to give them just a little bit of a load off on their shopping this year. Gabe, what particular code might they be looking for if they wanted to buy some Dream Drashing merch for Hanukkah presents? You know, I'm so excited that people want to get their friends and loved ones some Drinking and Drashing Torah with a Twist merch. You can do that at store.drinkingandrashing.com. Use the promo code SCHMALTZ, S-H-M-A-L-T-Z, for 10% off your order. Lechaim. Lechaim. Hi, I'm Jesse Epstein, and you're listening to Drinking and Drashing Toro with a Twist. And as a former EMT and current beer brand owner, I am one of the most qualified people to say l'chaim, to life.